Revelation 20, a very serious passage of Scripture, of course, very celebratory passage of Scripture in many ways. And so let's read responsibly verses 1 through 10. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed for a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which worshipped not the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle with the number of whom is the sand of the sea. And, and, they went on the, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. A lot of meat here, a lot of material here to cover. We're going to cover a thousand years in a few minutes here, about 30, 30 minutes is the plan. But I want you to notice verse number two. Four times it says we see the word kilion there in the Greek language, but we know it as a thousand years, of course, uh, uh, a millennium in the Latin, of course, but uh, it says a thousand years. The saints shall be bound for a thousand years. And then again in verse number two, the thousand years should be no, until uh, the thousand years should be fulfilled. In verse number uh, four, a, we shall live and reign with Christ a thousand years. And uh, verse number five, the thousand years again. And we read six and seven. I said six time, four times, there's six times we find the word phrase, the thousand years. We want to talk about the thousand years and, and uh, heaven or hell. A thousand years is a long time, but a thousand years is as a day. In the, uh, a day says a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. But we're going to go to a kingdom, those that are saved for a thousand years. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you bless tonight, dear God, and as we look into thy word and look into the future, thanks to your word and thanks to your Holy Spirit, give us understanding and unction tonight, we pray. Lord, we look forward to being with you, and Lord, that won't be a boring, not a boring day, not a boring minute, not a boring second. It'll be fullness of joy and uh, everlasting joy forever and ever when we get to heaven. We look forward to this thousand-year millennial reign. We pray these things and ask that you bless now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Chapter 19 closes, and we just want to spend a few moments in review of the last oh, 28 messages or something like that. And uh, we end chapter 19 with the, the Battle of Armageddon, of course, and closes at this, the end of the seven-year tribulation period, which culminates in the second coming of Christ and his armies, his, of his saints, which you and I will be part of that, those that are in Christ.
And the chapter ends with the beast and the false prophet. Just glance at verse number 20 of chapter 19. It says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, that, and that which he, was, which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and they worshipped the image, worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And uh, we are what's called, we are a pre-tribulationalist church as opposed to a, uh, we also are a pre-millennialist church uh, as opposed to a pre-trib or post-trib or pre-wrath church. In other words, let me try to make this real simple. We believe the next event in God's prophetic calendar is the fact that Jesus is coming again in what we call the rapture. And he's coming at any moment. He could come, come tonight, he could come tomorrow, he could come next week, next month. And I think the time is, I know this is nearer than ever before, we don't believe in what's called the mid-tribulation period of time where some people believe that Christ would come in the middle of the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period, or a post-tribulation position, or a pre-wrath position, but we believe in a pre-tribulational position and uh, that the Christ is going to come before rapture us out immediately. The flow of this book of Revelation teaches us that, and uh, we start, we could go back to Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, we see that we're, Paul, John said immediately that he was caught up. And uh, we don't see the church again. That we, last time we see the church is in the last verse of Revelation chapter 3. We don't see the church again until the bride of Christ until we get to Revelation 19. And we, we see the bride come and, and, and uh, marriage supper of the Lamb, of course, in chapter 19 we talked about. And uh, the church is going to be gathered together, of course, or come back to earth to set up this with the Lord Jesus, this thousand-year millennial kingdom reign. But I want you to be, just begin in verse number one now. It says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Notice the phrase bottomless pit. And uh, the word bottomless pit is in the, the Greek language happens to be the word in, found nine times in our scripture. It's the word abyss, of course, the bottomless pit. It's found seven times in Revelation. It's uh, all seven times in this passage in front of us here, of course, the bottomless pit. It's found in, actually, starting in chapter 9, verses 1, 2, and 11, chapter 11, verses 7, chapter 17, verse 8, and then in Revelation 20, verses 1 and 3. And uh, the, first time we, the first time we see this bottomless pit, as it's called, it's in Revelation 9, and the angel is, the angel is a, a demonic angel, evidently Satan himself, that uh, is, the Bible says in Revelation 9, 11, and they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is, is in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue he has his name Apollyon, of course. And so uh, when we get to this chapter and we see that the angel here is obviously an angel of the Lord, in verse number one of chapter 20, and I saw an angel come from down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit. And uh, uh, angels in this, uh, this angel has a great chain in his hand, rather. And Jude 6 says this, speaking about the demonic angels, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under the darkness of judgment, unto judgment of the present of the great day, of course. And uh, Revelation 20, verse number two, notice what it says. It says, and he laid hold on the dragon, 
that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and hath bound him a thousand years. And so we see this bottomless pit seven times in this passage of scripture here, of course, or Revelation, I should say. And uh, we see four names for Satan in verse number two. The first two names deal with his personality. The last two names deal with his personal names. Notice the, the four names that we find in verse number two. And he laid hold on the dragon. He's called the dragon. Uh, we see that again in Revelation chapter 12. And it refers to his bestial leadership or his bestial government, uh, uh, the bestial governments of the world, of course. And the Bible says in Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against angels, against principalities, against rulers and spiritual darkness and in, uh, in high places, of course. And uh, I believe every nation, I believe that, uh, where I ran right now, there's a demonic angel that uh, is running the affairs of in Iran and Iraq, and you go around the world, there's a demonic angel that's assigned to America, and maybe a demonic angel assigned to every one of our states, and uh, uh, d demonic angels, of course, but this is this uh, dragon, and he, this Satan himself, and he's ahead of all the world empires, of course. He's the God of this world, of course. But we read about verse number two, he says, the, the, he's called the, the dragon, that old serpent. And we go back in our minds, of course, we, most of us know, we go back to Genesis chapter 3. We see that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And so we see Satan come first time in the form of a serpent. And uh, he's wily, he's subtle, he's devious, of course. Uh, Corinthians says, Paul said that we are not ignorant of his devices, but we are ignorant. Uh, Satan has devoured to sift us as wheat, Jesus said in and Peter said, uh, he walketh about his roaring lion, singing whom he, he may devour. And so we see his nature, his personality, rather. He's a dragon. He's the, oh, he's the serpent. But then the Bible says he's the devil. The word devil there is, of course, the word di diabolus or di diabolus. Of course, we say diabolic. And uh, notice that it's singular. It's not devils, but devil. Uh, the devil. There's only one devil. And uh, he's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Jesus said, John 8, 44, that you're of your father, the devil. There's one earthly father, of course, in regards to spiritual, and we, whom we all have our conversation with, and that's the de devil himself, of course. We're all children of the wicked one. We have to be adopted. We would have to be born again into God's family, of course, to receive Christ as our Savior and uh, uh, get, a new, get a new father. And uh, so we have this, this devil... And uh, again, not devils. And uh, we read about demons, plural, but we read about devils, the devil's singular. And then his, his name is his, his proper name, of course, is found in verse number two, which is the devil and Satan. And uh, Satan, whether in the Hebrew or in the Greek or in the English, is all the same basic word. It's a transliteration. He's the accuser of the brethren. Turn to Genesis, uh, Revelation chapter 12. I want you to see the verse, just back a few pages. You ever feel guilty? You ever feel uh, guilt is of the devil, conviction is of the Spirit of God. And there's a, someone, someone said there's a fine line, but really there isn't, but it seems like there's a fine line. Sometimes the devil guilts us. He's the, the Bible says in Revelation 12:10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser, notice that the kingdom of our God is coming, the thousand millennial kingdom reign. For the accuser, of our, of our brethren is cast down, which accused 
them before God night, day and night. So he's the accuser of the brethren. He says, you're no good. He says, you're a sinner. You're, 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 uh, you're, you're wicked. You're, 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 you're a failure. And uh, I got a call yesterday, just a little off subject, but I just, it's very fresh in my mind. I got a call yesterday from somebody who wanted to talk about salvation, and they, really he wanted to talk about, uh, uh, he told me he get, the fellow got saved, and he said he got saved, and uh, he was now perfect. He doesn't sin any longer. And, uh, and uh, I says, let me get this straight. You haven't sinned since you've been saved? And uh, he, he said, no, I'm, I've been, I'm perfect now. And uh, I said a few things. I was kind to him and so forth. And uh, he, says, he said, do you sin still? I said, yes, I sin almost every day of my life, most, most days, several days, times a day. And then I said to him, uh, uh, I told him diplomatically as best I could that uh, he was smoking something. I didn't say it that way. But uh, I said he was wrong, of course. And, uh, and then as I was talking to him, he clicked. He hung up the phone on me. And I said, you got mad at me. You sinned. You just sinned, of course. And uh, uh, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, though. He, 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 we, he wants to destroy us, of course. But back into verse number three, if we could. And notice, as we go back to Revelation 20, verse 3, and cast him into the bottomless pit. This is after the battle of Armageddon. This is after the seven-year tribulation period of time. And shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. So I want you to get the timeline we're living in this age of grace, this church age. At any given moment, the rapture can take place. And we're, the bride of Christ will be caught up out of here and we'll be taken to heaven. This world will be cast into a seven-year tribulation period of time. as the time of Jacob's trouble. After a seven-year tribulation period of time, there'll be a thousand years. Christ will come back and riding on a white horse, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. And we will come with him and we'll, there'll be a great battle, the battle of Gog and Magog, or battle of Armageddon rather. And uh, he will set up his kingdom. He will bind, he will cast the, the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And uh, he will cast Satan into the bottomless pit. Interesting. Uh, there is a difference between the lake of fire and the bottomless pit. And uh, notice verse number 20 once again of chapter 19. I won't read the whole verse for time's sake. But uh, the beast and the false prophet again are taken and they are cast, both cast alive. Notice Notice they are cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. I, I don't know if I, uh, I guess this is uh, re-learning uh, for me again, I guess, as I was studying for this message, I kind of forgot that the bottomless pit and lake of fire are two different places, evidently, because it reads that in verse, chapter 20, verse 1, of course, that uh, the angel had the key to the bottomless pit and he cast Satan into this bottomless pit, and as we read further. And so uh, uh, nine times we find this word bottomless pit. I've already given you this, but uh, the word abyss, seven of the nine times it's found in, in uh, Revelation, it's bottomless pit. And, uh, and two times, one in Luke 8, 31, and another time in Romans 10, 17, it's called the deep. Let me quote to you Luke 8, 31. When Jesus casts out the demonic devils, demons from hell, uh, or rather out of the maniac of Gadara, remember the story? There's 6,000 or 7,000, something like that. And when he cast them out, they, they besought him. It says, 
And they besought him that he would not, that's Jesus, would not command uh, them to, be, to go out into the deep. The word is the word abyss, of course. And, the, and uh, instead they, asked, they besought the Lord to send him into the swine. And of course, the swine went into the, the deep of the water, of course, and they were all drowned, of course. But uh, then another time, it's in Revelation, Romans 10, verse 7, for who shall send into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And so there's the bottomless pit, there's the deep. And uh, we, again, that word abyss is found seven times in Revelation. And it's always the word, it's always the phrase, the bottomless pit. And so Satan is not cast into the lake of fire, but into the bottomless pit here in this chapter. This is important to know this. Now back to the lake of fire. Let's go back to, for the third time and last time, go back to just glance at verse number 20 again of chapter 19. They both are cast alive into the lake of fire. We find this phrase, lake of fire, actually five times, four times. It's called the lake of fire. And we just read verse 20, but look at verse 20, chapter 20, verse number 10. It says, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Again, in verse number 14 and 15, it says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Go over to chapter 21. Look at verse number 8. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice there's an order to this lake of fire. That we see that first of all that the, the beast and the false prophet are the first ones to be cast there. Remember in Luke, Jesus said that the, the hell was made for the devil and his angels. God didn't make hell for, for mankind. He was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come into repentance. And he made hell, hell for the devil and his angels. So we see this lake of fire, and, uh, uh, and the beast and the false prophet are first cast there. Then after the thousand-year tribulation period, of time, millennial period of time, Satan is cast there. And then in Revelation 21, verse Eight, of course, as I've already quoted the verse, and many other people, all the unsaved are cast there, but uh, they're brought up. So uh, b- back to this lake of fire one more time here. Uh, I believe in that uh, Jesus, when he died, he descended into the Abraham's bosom, of course, into two part- compartments of Abraham's bosom. And uh, Ephesians 4, 8 says this, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, this is on his resurrection day, uh, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that, but that he first descended first to the lower parts of the earth, or i.e. what we know of as Abraham's bosom. What am I saying? I'm saying before Christ, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. We've covered this material several times before, a number of times before. But he, when Christ died on the cross, he went to Abraham's bosom in the center of the earth. And, uh, and when he led captivity captive, at some point he, he, he's, he's the first fruits of the resurrection, he had to present his blood on the altar seat of mercy seat of heaven. And he ascended up into high, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts unto men, he gave us the Holy Spirit of God. And we, Brother Dave's been covering that in Acts chapter 2. We talked about that in regards to uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God, of course. And, and uh, so we see this, Jesus ascended to to. Uh, hell, and then, uh, but there's evidently an, uh, a second hell, lake of fire is eternal hell, because notice what it says in verse 14 of chapter 20. And death and hell, let me start up in verse number 13, rather. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And this is a great white throne judgment starting in verse number 11. I should have started there, I suppose. But I'm making a false assumption that everybody knows what took place here, what takes place here in the great white throne judgment. It's after the thousand year millennial kingdom reign. And it's, the Bible says in verse number 12, there's found no place for them. And the, everyone that goes in front of this judgment is lost. They're resurrected from, from death and hell. And they, they're the dead. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books are open. And they were judged according to their, I paraphrase and skip forward to verse number 12, according to their works. And the sea gear of the dead which were in them, verse 13, were in it, rather. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And every man was judged... Uh, according to their works. Well, Isaiah says that all of our works are as what? Filthy rags, of course. Uh, there's no, no, no righteousness, works righteousness that can never get us to heaven. Many people are trying, millions of people are trying to get to heaven or nirvana or, or uh, uh, paradise uh, by keeping good works, whether they be Muslim or Hindu or, or Buddhist or so-called Christians. Uh, uh, not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. And so they're trying to get to heaven by their works, and their works are righteous, filthy rags, of course. But then we get to verse 14, and death and hell were cast, so hell is emptied out and cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And, uh, and whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so, and this is a place of eternity, a place of uh, everlasting torment, of course. We know it as uh, eternal hell, obviously. And so uh, we see in verse number four, as we press forward here, and I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them which were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Nobody beheads anymore, do they? Pardon me, I'm being facetious, of course. We know that that's, that's a common occurrence now in our new world that we live in, it seems like. It's actually been always going on through centuries but more so in these last days. Uh, neither had his image, uh, uh, verse number four, I lost my place here, or beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshiped the beast nor his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a, a thousand years. Again, that phrase a thousand years, I am circled in my Bible, verse two, verse three, Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7 all have that phrase, a thousand years. And uh, we are what's on, this is a side path, we are what's called dispensationalists. We interpret the Bible by dispensations or by uh, periods of time that God works differently, has different governments for different periods of time. There's, uh, there's many churches are what are known as covenant theologians. I want to boil this down as the lowest common denominator, the simplest differentiation between a dispensationalist and a covenant theologian, that would be simply this, that a covenant theologian takes it usually and almost always an allegorical, so-called spiritual, so-called mystical interpretation of scriptures. That's how you say, why do some churches sprinkle babies? They take an allegorical, mystical interpretation of the word of God. In, uh, in the Old Testament, the baby, Jewish baby boys would be circumcised on what day? the eighth day. And so if you're a covenant theologian, you take it and say, well, see right there, to be a, identified as a Jew, you gotta be circumcised on the eighth day. And so to be identified as a Christian, you gotta be baptized as a baby. This is an incredible stretch there. 
It's called allegory, allegorical interpretation, of course, or mystical. You gotta be, uh, like Pastor Greg says, you gotta be a PhD or a super smart guy in order to figure that out. And natural men cannot understand that, of course, and I'm being facetious, of course. And uh, so they take a, 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 covenant theologians take a literal, rather a allegorical, mystical, spiritual uh, approach to interpretation of scriptures. But a dispensationalist takes a more literal, historical approach to uh, interpretation of the scriptures. And the easiest way to say it is, when the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. And so when God says we're going to live and reign for a thousand years, hint, 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 we're going to live and reign for a thousand years. And, uh, and we can believe God, of course. When Jesus says he's coming back on a white horse in Revelation 19, there's no reason not to believe that. Say, well, that, that would be like a miracle. That would be impossible. Well, we're talking about the God of the impossible, of course. He can do all things. When God says he created the stars of the universe, created the universe in six days, we, we believe he created the, earth, the universe in six days. Uh, now, if you're, not, not, if you're smart and sophisticated, you say, well, that can't happen. That, that, that couldn't happen that fast. And we, we uh, trust science more than the word of God, of course. And I like what Pastor Greg said about that this morning, of course, that, that uh, we interpret the... Uh, the, the world by, the, by our Bible, uh, by our Bible theology, of course, by the Bible, not by the, we don't interpret the Bible by the so-called science falsely called in this world, of course. And so we see the difference between covenant and dispensational theology. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that, the, that uh, by the way, covenant theologians, uh, almost all are amillennialist or, or post-millennialist. And uh, let me just explain that real quickly. Amillennials is the belief that there is no literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Instead, it holds to that the, the millennium is a symbolic representation of the present age during which Christ reigns in heaven with souls of the departed saints. In other words, they spiritualize it. They say there's really no literal millennium. That would be too, too, too literal, of course. And uh, that would be too real, of course. And it's spiritual. It's mystical. It's, it's uh, not a real thing, of course. And then there's Postmillennials that say that we're going to make this world so good, we got people social social justice and social gospel. We're going to we're going to just get better and better and better and better, and we're going to usher in the kingdom of God as after a thousand years of being goody goody two shoes, of course. And uh, postmillennialists said Christ comes at the end of the kingdom reign and we usher him in. That's not how it's going to work. Man's getting worse and worse and more evil and evil by the day, and uh, Christ is going to come and he's going to that seven-year tribulation period of time, and then he's going to come back and clean up up the house and, and we're going to have a, a, a thousand-year literal reign. Dr. James Bartish uh, lists the characteristics of the kingdom. I just want to give you a few characteristics this evening here. It's, uh, he has uh, about 14 of them, and uh, let me just read them to you. It says, uh, first of all, this kingdom will be a long-lived kingdom. It'll be a thousand years. Uh, it'll be an international kingdom of spirituality and unified worship of God. All nations will come into that uh, uh, kingdom, of course, and uh, God's not a respecter of persons. There'll be uh, Jews and Gentiles, of course. There'll be uh, men, women, boys, and girls. Uh, uh, be all different races and nationalities of people. And uh, one lawgiver, of course, and King Jesus and uh, Yahweh is the king, of course. And uh, thirdly, he says it will be a kingdom of holiness. Oh, look forward to a kingdom of holiness in this wicked world. It'd be nice to have a place where, where everything is uh, pure and clean, of course, and, and no sin to fight with. We won't be fighting our human 
our, our damning nature, of course, Satan will be bound for the thousand years and tempter will be in this bottomless pit. And fourthly, it'll be a place of, it'll be a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Isaiah 11, 1 to 5 tells us that. It'll be uh, right will be right and wrong will be wrong and it'll be a kingdom of justice and uh, righteousness, of course. It'll be a kingdom in, uh, of economic prosperity and uh, there'll be streets of gold. <laughs> there'll be palaces, of course. There'll be mansions, of course, and likewise with heaven. It'll be a place of peace and security. Uh, and people are crying, peace, peace. There is no peace, of course. When we get to the millennial kingdom, there'll be a place of peace. The Prince of Peace will reign, and there'll be perfect security. We won't have to lock our doors at night, and, uh, and there'll be no crime, of course. It'll be a place of global Israeli supremacy and honor. And, of course, as the kingdom reign, the Jews are going to reign uh, as uh, uh, the 12 the 12 tribes of Israel, of course, and the 12 apostles of the Lamb are going to reign, of course, and, and uh, govern. And uh, I don't know how much we'll have to do with that, but uh, uh, it's, the Jews will definitely be uh, in the, the seat of uh, supremacy and power and honor. It'll be a kingdom of joy. It'll be a kingdom ruled by the descendants of David. And, uh, of course, I already said that. And then lastly... Uh, it is a kingdom in which all who have faith in God and Jesus will participate, and one from, and one from which all will do, who do not, will be fearfully and irrevocably excluded. Boy, I'm hoping. I went to I went to the eye doctor on Friday, and I'm getting new glasses. I'm hoping they're going to work when I get them, but uh, we'll find out here. But uh, so we see the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. We get to verses five through six, and there's this a whole message right there, verses 5 and 6. And so we're going to skip those tonight here, and Lord willing, come back to those in a couple of weeks. But the rest of the dead live not at all again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in this first resurrection, on such as second death hath no power, but they shall reign, uh, be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And then I want to go to verse number 7, and the Bible says... Uh, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Now this may be one of the most inexplicable verses in the Bible. Uh, why Satan is loosed out of prison. Why does God lose Satan after a thousand years of beautiful kingdom righteousness, of holiness, of perfect peace, of sinlessness, of, uh, of uh, uh, joy and happiness? Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, Isaiah 55 says. Why does he do that? Well, the real answer is, and Brother Dave, I'll steal from his uh, theology this morning here, he said, uh, one of the most sophisticated answers I, I, I know, of course, he said, in regards to uh, the baptism of, uh, of Moses and uh, the children of Israel and the Red Sea, of course, uh, uh, I don't know. And uh, I don't know why, uh, the truth be told, I don't know why, uh, it's one of the inexplicable mysteries of the Lord. Why does God lose Satan? Why did God make Satan? If you can answer that question, you're incredibly smarter than I am. And uh, this is a mystery of mysteries, of course. And uh, we, we have an answer. We, have a, we came up with an answer, us dispensationalists. Basically, our answer says in regards to well, why, did God lose, why does God lose Satan after the thousand years? We say something like this, that at the end of every dispensation, seven to be exact, we believe, and some say eight, some say five, but that's another story. 
But uh, after Abraham's dissertation, we see the utter failure of man. And then we see God come in and rescue, the, rescue the, the situation, of course. That's what happens here. We see the utter failure of man, and when men are given the opportunity, during the thousand year millennial reign, people will procreate, and there'll be millions of children born. You notice what it says in verse number seven. Uh, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, verse eight, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is, is, as, not, is, as, is as, or like the sands of the sea, in other words. They went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God and out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. We see this rising up at the end of the thousand kingdom reign. Now, we don't have to worry about this. We have eternal life. We have everlasting life in Christ. But there's going to be people born, the Bible says in the millennial period of time, Isaiah says that a child shall die at 100 years of age. And, uh, and so we have people that procreate all the way through uh, the millennial period in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says, and of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And so this earth will be repopulating, much like God wanted to do in, in Eden, of course. Uh, of course, he knew what would happen, of course, and Adam and Eve, of course, sinned, but he's going to create, paradise is going to be restored, of course, and we're going to have a thousand years of beautiful kingdom reign, but when the opportunity is given to rise up against God one more time, Satan's going to be loosed and he's going to deceive the nations. So many, it says, the sand of the sea, and they'll rise up in the final battle, final, final climactic battle. But back to the original question, why does God lose Satan? And the best answer I can give is, I don't know. But I do know the word of God says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord, our God. But those things which are revealed unto, belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And uh, so I don't know why God allows Satan and uh, You'll go down that rabbit hole, that wormhole. You just keep going down that hole. Some of you know what I'm talking about when I talk about Calvinism and so forth and superlapsarianism, to use a big fancy theological term. This idea, if God knows everything, why did he allow sin? Why did he create? He created Lucifer. And why did he allow him sin? I don't know the answer to that. I don't have to know the answer to that. I'm not God, and neither are you. And the fact is, God allowed it. The only thing I can say is, uh, that's why I believe in what's called choice, or we use a more biblical phrase, free will. God gives us free will to accept or reject him, and he, wants, he doesn't want robots to, he had the angels of heaven, and even they fell, and that's an inexplicable mystery. Why does God create, why did God create Satan? I don't know why he created Satan. Why is he going to lose him? I don't know, but I know one day he's going to write, Satan's going to be cast in hell forever and ever and ever. But I have one more question here as we close out tonight here. Uh, a lot of questions, a lot of mysteries of God. The greatest mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. The Jew can't figure out how Jesus Christ can be God made in the flesh because they know that God is the spirit. I can't figure it out either, but God's word says so, and so I believe it by faith. And so we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God. It's a great mystery. There's a great mystery. Why did God create Satan? I don't know. It's a great mystery. Why, did God lose, why does God lose Satan after a thousand years of millennial kingdom reign? I don't know. It's a mystery, but he's going to do it. But here's the greatest mystery of all mysteries. Why does God love you? Why does God love me? Well, Paul couldn't comprehend this. He said in Ephesians 3, 18, 17, that we should be rooted and grounded in love. 
that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. Let me stop there before I read the rest of the verse. I can't fathom, I mean, and nobody here can fathom eternity. Forever and ever and ever. I said this several weeks ago in 815 service and somebody said, uh, somebody shook their head real, uh, 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 real authoritatively like, uh, you know, when I said this, you know, if heaven's for eternity, man, couldn't we get bored after a while? Uh, eternity is a long time. I mean, sometimes you have a long day. How about a long eternity? And while I know there's fullness of joy and in his presence or fullness of joy and his happiness, joy forevermore, everlasting joy shall be upon their head. We'll never have a single second of boredom in heaven. We've got some people, I know some people are, I'm tattling here, is going to head to that uh, Mickey land down there south of us here, and that, that's good for them. I'm happy for them, whatever. And uh, they, they'll, they'll be, hopefully they'll have a good time, but even that can get tiring. But it'll never get tiring in heaven, of course. And, uh, but we can't comprehend the breadth, the length, and the depth, and the height, not only of eternity, but of the love of Christ, because the verse, Ephesians 3.19 says this, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, wonder of wonders that Jesus loves me, that God would love us so much that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Uh, he didn't die for good people. Revelation, Romans 5, 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet per, per adventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think the greatest mystery is not the thousand-year millennial kingdom reign and eternity forever and ever and ever. I don't think the greatest mystery is why did God create Satan? I think the greatest mystery of all mysteries is why did God love me and love you so much he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross of Calvary. That's incomprehensible. I think it's going to take an eternity to figure that out, why God loves us so much. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word tonight, Lord. Lord, we look forward to heaven. Lord, it'll be so understatement of the night, dear God, and it'll be so enjoyable. It'll be so wonderful. It'll be perfect. Lord, there'll never be a boring moment. There'll never be an uncomfortable minute. There'll never be a moment of pain, a moment of sickness. No sorrow, no crying, no sickness, no death. Lord, you're going to wipe away all tears after the great white throne judgment. And uh, Lord, uh, we'll live and reign with you forever and ever and ever. Lord, uh, at the end of the, the Bible, we see that there's a heaven and there's a hell. And Lord, there's just a few words that separate man from all eternity, from one, from divide man from one place to another. Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, the the thief on the cross said, Lord, remember, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And uh, Lord, you saved him. He's been in heaven for 2,000 years. Seven words make the difference. Lord, I pray that you might bless this, this evening, dear God. I don't know why you love us so, but we thank you that you do love us so. And I pray that you'd bless in our moments of invitation to close out our service tonight. We pray in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.